The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. If you were not here last week, we introduced the book of Philemon. So it was an introduction, kind of survey overview. Now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of the details of this very short letter that Paul wrote. If you notice, wow, this is short, 25 verses in your English Bible. So we won't be here forever, but as we do go through, as I mentioned last week, it intersects with a lot of, I think, relevant and practical truths. So every once in a while, we'll stop here and there and talk about these very important, pertinent, pertinent truths, important that are relevant for us today, even in our culture. That's the beauty of the Word of God, of Scripture. It's, it's living and active. It never gets old. It's never irrelevant, even though this was written 2,000 years ago. Uh, we provided a handout there, just the title, Philemon, Christian Slave Owner. Ooh, yikes. But it's true, so we're going to talk about Philemon today and the fact that he was a slave owner because that, that needs to be addressed. Follow along as I read verses 1 to verse 19, introducing this letter. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother, fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, Philemon. That's who he's talking to. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother Philemon. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet... For love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him, Onesimus, as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. We'll stop there. The book of Philemon. Last week I asked for a show of hands of those of you who have done a devotion in Philemon recently, and I think there were two out of about 211 people here last week. It's one of the reasons why I chose this book. It's often neglected, it's unfamiliar to many Christians, but it's so beneficial, it's so rich. And we're going to be blessed by God as a result. And we're just going to go through it. 1 to 25, so let's go ahead and do that. Uh, today I don't really have an outline, it's just because we're not going to get far in terms of the content of the letter because we need to stop on a couple of important issues here. But let me just, a quick overview by way of reminder of this epistle that Paul is writing. First, the letter itself. As I said, it's the shortest of Paul's epistles. It's Paul's got 13 letters he wrote. They're all together in your New Testament, and the last one there. It's Philemon. It's the shortest one that Paul wrote. So it's one of Paul's 13 epistles. It's the shortest. It's the most personal of Paul's letters. It's not got a bunch of heavy doctrine. 
big fancy theological words. Sometimes Paul made up words, coined words. You won't find that here. It's one of four prison epistles, meaning Paul wrote four of his 13 letters while he was in prison in Rome, and that's true of this letter, Philemon. He wrote it in about 61 A.D., probably at the end of his Roman imprisonment. They said we left off the book of Acts. Paul ended up going to Rome to appeal to Caesar to make his case because he wasn't guilty of anything, and yet he'd been in chains for almost four years. And he didn't even do anything wrong, and so he appealed to Caesar. I want my day before. I'm a Roman citizen. I want to plead my case. So they said, sure. So he ends up in Rome. And he's under house arrest, we know from the book of Acts. He's chained. He's literally in chains in Rome. He ends up there in prison in Rome for two years. And while he's there, he writes this letter. He wrote this letter at the same time he wrote Colossians and Ephesians. Because Colossae and Ephesus, those two cities, were in the same general area. They're in Asia Minor, historically, modern-day Turkey. Colossae and Ephesus are about 100 miles apart from each other. Ephesus is the port city, and then over to the east is Colossae. And so Paul writes Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon at the same time, and he's going to actually send them all together with one of his personal assistants and his messenger, Tychicus. But also Onesimus is going to go on this trip of 1,000 miles, an arduous, dangerous, long journey all the way from Rome to the destination, probably arrive in Ephesus, and then another 100 miles to Colossae. And Onesimus is going to be, along with Tychicus, delivering these letters personally to these churches and to the individual Philemon. So that's what this letter is. It's a personal letter being sent. Probably, maybe it took months to deliver it. Months. Many times you don't even know if your letter was going to make it or not. Another interesting thing about this letter of Philemon, here it is, what is it, 2018 today? One of the oldest manuscripts we have intact of the entire book of Philemon, written in Greek entirely, virtually identical to what you have in your English Bible, that exists today, a manuscript dated from about 325 A.D. There's more than one of them, by the way. So we have more than one manuscript, Greek manuscript, of the book of Philemon, dated 1,700 years old. It's amazing. There is no other literature like that in the world that has that kind of veracity and historicity to it in terms of manuscripts that are still extant or in existence. It's amazing. So that's the letter itself, the letter of Philemon. Uh, how about the author, just by way of introduction? We know this is Paul right there. He says Paul. Paul does that at all. 13 of his letters, Paul. He lets us know up front who wrote it. That's why I think it's pretty clear Hebrews wasn't written by Paul because it doesn't begin out by saying Paul. Some historically have thought Paul wrote Hebrews, but... Probably, we know for sure he didn't. So Paul is the author. He's an apostle. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, one of 13 apostles, but the special one going to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. Paul was, you know, he was saved about five years after Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And then he became a special apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world and became a church planner and pastor. And here it's 30 years later now. He's planted churches, been on several missionary journeys, He's had a rough life, probably got saved in his 30s, and now he's probably in his 60s, and that's why a little later in the letter he calls, he refers to himself as the aged, the old one. The, I'm the old guy. I'm trying to get sympathy from Philemon. Not only am I your apostle and your pastor and your friend and your mentor, I'm an old guy. So he's probably in his 60s at this time. He's going to die in about five years from when he wrote this letter. This letter is written in 61 A.D. He gets beheaded by Nero, maybe 67, best we could tell. So that's Paul, the author. The audience, who's Paul writing to? Well, it's an individual letter. Most of Paul's letters are to churches. Few of them are to individuals. Titus, Timothy, and this one is to a man named Philemon. Who is Philemon? Philemon is only mentioned in this letter. He is mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. So we have very little information about Philemon, and even reading this letter, we don't get a whole lot of information about him personally. There are details about him, but it's scant. What do we know about Philemon? Well, from this letter, we know that Philemon was saved through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We know that Philemon was probably from Colossae, the city. He was not from Ephesus, so 
Philemon was not a believer, unsaved in the city of Colossae, 100 miles away from Ephesus. And so when the Apostle Paul was on his third missionary journey, we saw in the book of Acts, for three and a half years, Paul preached all over this huge city of Ephesus for over three years, house to house. Every, every corner of Ephesus had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul. And then that spilled over that ministry into surrounding regions, including maybe Laodicea in Asia Minor, but also in Colossae. We know that for a fact. And it could be that uh, Philemon visited the city of Ephesus for many different reasons, trade and dependent upon other things that they needed in their smaller town of Colossae, maybe some friendships that he had. But we know that he heard the ministry of the Apostle Paul at that time during Paul's ministry to Ephesus, and Philemon heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and got saved through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and had a radical transformation, became a new creature by virtue of his faith in Jesus Christ. We know that he, Paul commends him for his hospitality because he hosted the church of Colossae in his house. Colossae was a province of Rome in the Roman Empire. They're in Asia. And the Roman Empire had probably more than 50% of the Roman Empire at this time in terms of its population were slaves. Pretty close to it. And here Philemon actually was not a slave. He was actually a wealthy man. We know that because he owned a house. He owned a house big enough to host a church of many people in the church of Colossae. So he's a man of nobility, a man of wealth, materialism, means, probably respected, highly noted, wasn't a slave, had rights and privileges. This is Philemon, significant man. And then he gets saved. And then he starts hosting a church in his home, and not even just hosting it, it could very well be that Philemon, according to the tradition anyway, he was a bishop, which means he became a pastor or elder in this local church in Colossae, which makes sense, because Paul's writing a letter. When Paul writes his letters, he always writes it to leadership and people who are significant in the leadership of the various churches. That is probably true of Philemon. So it could be that he got saved, got discipled, became a very close friend with the Apostle Paul, He's even a co-worker with Paul, worked in the ministry with Paul, fellow uh, worker at the end of verse 1. So could be during that three-year period, Paul mentored, trained, discipled Philemon. And he was faithful and proved true to the task. And so that's Philemon. Also, Paul commends him for his virtues. We'll see that and be reminded of that. But he commends him for many virtues in this letter uh, Philemon, he said he was a man of faith. It means he trusted God. He trusted God's word. He was a man of love. And that can be seen in his actions. He was hospitable. We already noted that. Stranger love. He was sympathetic. It means he actually liked people. Not everybody liked people. Not everybody likes people. There are people who don't like people. There are Christians who don't like people don't have a whole lot of compassion and sympathy. And apparently, Philemon, he hurt in his gut and was sympathetic towards people. He loved people. If he didn't love people, he wouldn't be having people in his home. So he was sympathetic. He was forgiving. That is the premise. That's understood. That's actually one of the main points of this whole letter. He wasn't a forgiving man, supernaturally with the capability to forgive the worst of sinners. Paul wouldn't make this appeal. Paul would not have written this letter. He wouldn't be qualified to be a leader in a church. He's not a forgiving person. And he's being asked to forgive a pretty egregious sin. And we're going to see more about that in this letter. He is, apparently Philemon is reasonable because of the way Paul's talking to him. Also, you get the impression that Philemon is deferential. He is respectful. He notes Paul's authority. He respects Paul as an apostle, as his pastor, but also as an older man. Philemon is a benevolent, generous person. He's a faithful husband. Apparently, he's got a wife. She's noted early on in the letter in verse 2, Athea. So, those are just some things about his character. Oh, I also said he was wealthy. He owned a house. Not only did he own houses... 
He was a slave owner. He owned slaves. Yet he was a Christian. He was a godly man, yet he owned slaves. Whoa, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. That seems like a contradiction. We're going to talk about that. Okay, the topic at hand, just briefly. The topic at hand of this letter is Paul is writing to Philemon. He's making an appeal so that he's asking him to embrace and forgive one of his slaves that's run away, and that's Onesimus. Onesimus is the name of the runaway slave in verse 10. Philemon, would you, would you be willing to forgive your runaway slave, Onesimus, please? And then Paul gives reasons why. So there's Onesimus. He's the main character in this little letter, this story. Uh, slave, had no rights. Typical if you were a slave in the Roman Empire. Slavery was rampant, as it was in the Greek Empire, so in the Greco-Roman Empire. Slavery reigned supreme. Nobody thought it was bad, evil, or illegal, historically, for the most part, in terms of a vantage point from the law's point of view. It was just a part of the culture. As a matter of fact, that's how Rome built its great kingdom, was on the backs of its slaves for decades. So Roman slavery... And that's what Onesimus was. Like I said, in the day of Rome, the best that we can tell from the Bible and also from history, the slave in the days of Rome, they had no rights. They weren't all the same. Slaves were different. Some did menial tasks. Some were lowly. Some didn't have really homes. Some slept in the street. Some had great education, ability, artisans, artists, constructors, designers, builders. We all know this from archaeology and things that have been discovered and found. So... They covered the gamut in terms of their abilities and capabilities. So no, the slaves weren't all the same. But they didn't have rights. For the most part, they were property and belonged to their master. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's Onesimus. Not only is he a slave, he's a runaway slave, so he bailed. So he was a slave of Philemon in Colossae, and at some point he ran away. Not only did it run away, he stuffed his pockets with as much stuff as he could when his master wasn't looking and fled. Probably needed that for money to take a ship to get to his destination a thousand miles away in Rome, big sprawling city with all kinds of people where he could just get lost in the crowd and be on the run for a long time. And for the most part, he was successful until God intervened. So he was a slave, a runaway slave, a thief. And according to Roman law, he was a fugitive because he was a runaway slave. Rome recognized the rights of masters, and if you had a runaway slave, you had the rights to get your slave back. And the masters under Roman law could punish their slave just about any way they wanted to. They were caught after they ran away. Sometimes they'd get a big like tattoo on their forehead with a big old F in Latin. Fugitivus, fugitivus, however you pronounce it. I don't take Latin. But anyway... Big old F, right on the forehead. Or the slave could be beaten. Or the slave slave could be fined and beaten. Or he could be mutilated. Or he could be sold. Or he could be executed and killed. And many times, the common way to kill your slave was crucifixion. And that happened frequently. So Onesimus is a runaway slave, runs a thousand miles to the city of Rome, trying to get lost. And then God intervenes supernaturally somehow, And lo and behold, here's Paul in prison under house arrest in Rome. So he's got a little bit of freedom, but he's in chains, tied to Roman soldiers. And somehow Onesimus, the runaway slave, ends up meeting the Apostle Paul in Rome with its over one million people. Coincidence? Chance? No. Providential. Supernatural. God is in control. God wanted that to happen. He made a divine appointment. The chain of events that led up to it have to be absolutely mind-boggling. So the runaway slave meets the prisoner in chains. And we don't know a whole lot other than the Apostle Paul says, he calls Onesimus my child in verse 10. What does that mean? The Apostle Paul was able to give Onesimus the pagan, runaway, evil, wicked, thief of a slave, of a fugitive, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God works on Onesimus' heart and mind, convicts him, rips away the blinders, he's convicted, and he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gets saved. And Onesimus becomes a Christian. Absolutely amazing. 
Not only that, Onesimus starts hanging around the Apostle Paul. He's staying where he was under house arrest. He's ministering to Paul's needs, Paul tells us. And Onesimus, I think his name means useful. He was useless as a slave. But once he got saved, he was now useful. And Paul makes kind of use of his name now. He is useful to me. He is useful to you, Philemon. Onesimus, your slave, he is a new man. He's born again. He's my child. He's, that means he's in the family of God. That means he's not just your slave, Philemon. He's a brother in Christ to you. You have a new relationship. There's a new status there you need to be aware of. So that is Onesimus. Saved, new creature, in Christ. Old things pass away. All things have become new. He has the Spirit of God literally living inside of him, giving him a new mind, new understanding, new conscience, new sensitivities, new loyalties, new desires. The capacity and access to the fruits of the Spirit of God, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These would now typify... Onesimus as a believer in Jesus Christ, or they should. And apparently they do, according to Paul's reference and vindication and approval of him. He commends Onesimus to Philemon. Philemon, I know he's your property. I know you own him. I know he's your slave. I know he probably deserves the death penalty, but please accept him back. Take him back. Forgive him. Use him. Treat him as a brother in Christ. And Paul even makes a greater request than all of those. So, anyway, it's interesting. But So the one thing I wanted to highlight this morning, at least introduce, was in everything that Paul does here in making a request to Philemon regarding the runaway slave of Onesimus, and basically he says, and Philemon, so I'm sending Onesimus back to you, and I want you to forgive him, I want you to receive him, I want you to recognize him as a brother in Christ. He's a fellow Christian. Now, what's amazing is what Paul doesn't say in the letter as an apostle to Philemon, the Christian slave owner, in this letter. And some people are just baffled. It's like, wow. What did Paul not say? Well, he didn't rebuke Philemon for being a slave owner. How dare you own people? You're a Christian. He didn't do that. He also didn't Say, release all your slaves, Philemon, by order of the Apostle Paul. He didn't do that. He didn't even specifically say, you need to release Onesimus. And he didn't say, you need to eradicate slavery and all Christians need to. That's part of our mission. Didn't say that either. So it's amazing. And it begs the question that we want to look at today and that so many ask, The Apostle Paul, he talked about slavery. He wrote about slavery. And not one time did the Apostle Paul ever say we need to eradicate slavery. He never condemned slavery as an institution. As a matter of fact, at the three times when you see where Paul wrote most extensively about slavery, actually four, right here in this letter, Philemon, but also in Ephesians that we just read and also Colossians, the parallel passage. And then in 1 Timothy 6, Paul talks about, he addresses slaves and masters in those passages, assuming that they are Christians, and he's telling them they have a reciprocal relationship. And in in effect, he doesn't say, slaves, be free. Masters, Christian masters, release all your slaves. He doesn't do that. It's kind of surprising and even shocking what he does say. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Wow. Slaves, be obedient to your masters as unto Christ. That's alarming. Some people stumble over that. And then what he says to masters. Masters, he recognized their right to own their slaves, but he, he does give it the Christian ethic, and at the heart of which is the gospel. You have slaves, treat them properly. Don't treat them harshly. And basically he says treat them as an equal in terms of being persons because both of you have a master in heaven, reminding the master he is also a slave, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's a Christian. As a matter of fact, let's read 1 Timothy 6, just to show you, Paul's because the terminology is so specific, but it's also important. 
Colossians and Ephesians say something similar, but 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Listen carefully to the Apostle Paul. This is the end of Paul's life. A few years later, he says, All who are under the yoke as slaves, okay, this is real slavery in the Roman Empire. All who are under, these are Christians, okay, all you Christians out there who got saved and you're still slaves to your masters. Now, you're Christians and you're slaves. Somebody owns you here in the Roman Empire, and your master might be a Christian and he might not be a Christian. This is kind of like Peter writing to the Christian wife. Hey, wife, you have a husband. He might, your husband might be saved. He might not be saved. He might be obedient to the word. He might not. The obligations from God to you are the same. Verse 1, all who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That is amazing. What if he's a lousy, abusive master? doesn't matter. He says, regard your master as worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of our God and of our doctrine will not be spoken against because you need to be a good testimony to your master and everybody else in that household who is watching. And that's, this is what Christ did, right? He was abused. He suffered. He was mocked. He was mistreated, and yet he maintained his testimony of godliness. So did the Apostle Paul. Verse 2, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are their fellow brothers in Christ, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles, Timothy, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, they have a different view on slavery, they are wrong. They are conceited. They don't know what they're talking about. That's amazing. So nowhere in Paul's epistles does he condemn slavery and say it needs to be eradicated. So this is a tremendous stumbling block to many people. As a matter of fact, it's one of the number one critiques that skeptics, atheists, people who want to bash on Christianity, this is one of the arguments they go to immediately to malign Christians and try to undermine the Bible and also to point out that the Bible is archaic and just downright wrong because everybody knows that slavery is wrong and evil. And yet your New Testament, your Bible, the Apostle Paul, condones slavery and doesn't say we need to eradicate it. This reminds me of whenever I have the privilege to go and do an apologetic seminar, which I recently did in Florida about three weeks ago. It was a Friday and Saturday, and it was on apologetics defending the faith. And so I teach and I explain principles, but I like to turn it around and make it interactive. And so I like to get the audience involved. And usually they're all Christians. It's like, well, I just don't want to tell you how to defend your faith. I want you to show me how you're going to defend your faith. So inevitably, Pastor Cliff will take somebody out of the audience, sometimes somebody who's not even volunteering. I'll just make them. And I have them come up, and then I put them in the hot seat. And then I'm the lawyer, and I'm the skeptic, and I'm the atheist, and I get in the back of the room, and I hate Christians, I hate the Bible, I hate that Christian sitting in that chair, and I just tear into them like an unsaved lawyer and try to make them cry sitting under their chair. And usually it's just one, I will pick one issue, one popular critique of Christianity, and some guy, it was, I think, in when I did this in Ukraine, he called me Joe Skeptic. Joe So that name has stuck ever since, so everywhere I go, I am now Joe Skeptic. So... I was Joe Skeptic just a couple weeks ago in Florida, and we had several people, most of which were volunteers, come up one at a time. And I just asked them one question, one hard question, that unbelievers or critics frequently say to undermine Christianity, things that Richard Dawkins, world-famous atheist, would typically say, like the problem of evil. God is so loving and so powerful. How come there's so much evil in the world? And then unbelievers think, oh, that's it. You can't answer that question, Christian. And so I asked him to explain that or ask him about homosexuality or just all these controversial things. Or uh, I'll ask, so you think the Bible doesn't have any errors? And then I will point out an apparent blatant glaring error in the Bible. And they have to, on the spot, spontaneously try to defend it and answer it. They usually do pretty good. And these folks in Florida did really well. We had like five or six of them. Uh, but the one person that they couldn't answer the question, I nailed them. Boom, they had no answer, and it was on the issue of slavery. Well, I did the same thing back in January in Honduras. I did apologetics 
These were pastors. And then I had them come up after a while, and I'm grilling them with questions, and they did really well. And then when I got to slavery, uh, the pa- he had a hard time. And that's kind of been what's happened everywhere I do this, whether it's Siberia in the middle of winter or Ukraine or here in Sunday school at GBF. And here's how I typically pose the question. I'll ask the Christian, oh, so you, you're a Christian? Yes. So you believe in the Bible? Yes. So you believe the Bible uh, doesn't have any errors? Yes. It's perfect? Yes. Oh, okay. And then I'll ask them, is slavery bad? Usually they'll say, uh, yeah. Sometimes they'll say they don't want to answer the question. They don't want to commit themselves. Uh, well, it depends. Somebody said, really? Racist? Is slavery bad? The other you say, well, yeah, I guess. Is it evil? Yeah. Okay. Then the follow-up question is, then why does the Bible condone slavery? Well, the Bible doesn't condone slavery. Yeah, it does. Paul mentions slavery. He condones it at least four times in the New Testament. He never. Would you agree that the Apostle Paul never condemns slavery? Would you agree that Jesus never uh, said that we need to eradicate slavery? They have to agree with that. Would you agree that slavery is in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law? Would you agree with that? Yes. Would you agree that many saints throughout the Old Testament had slaves? Yes. So, you know, and then they have to answer yes if they know their Bible. And then they're kind of slouching and turning red and sweating and crying. And then we drag them by the ankles out of the room. I've actually had people over the years use this criticism with me to try to undermine my faith. So what I wanted to briefly do is just give you an overview of one of the most difficult issues in the New Testament, and it's relevant to other things as well. How come Jesus didn't come and eradicate poverty? Well, he didn't. That was not his message. Neither did the apostles. Is poverty good? No. Poverty bad and evil? Yes. Did Jesus and the apostles come to eradicate poverty? No. Is slavery bad? Yes. Is it evil? Yes. Did Jesus eradicate slavery in his day? No. Did the Apostle Paul? No. Did Paul and the Apostles preach against slavery? No. Did they condemn it? No. So here's just five points to note real quick about slavery when people ask you that question. How come the Apostles and Jesus, and particularly the New Testament, did not preach against slavery? Or demand that the Christian church abolish it. Well, number one, slavery was only one form of sin. Uh, and it, Slavery was the fruit of evil, and Jesus preached against the root of evil. So slavery is more an external manifestation of the sinfulness and wickedness of men, and Jesus' focus and concentration was on, deep down on the heart of a human being. Why do we have slavery? Because people are evil and wicked to the core. That's why. And Jesus did preach against that. And it manifests itself in many different ways, not just slavery. Number two, Jesus' message wasn't about eradicating slavery. It wasn't a social gospel. He wasn't trying to change the culture or make temporary superficial changes in terms of our social structure. Jesus' message and the message of the apostles was the gospel. It's really that simple. Paul said, I preach nothing but the gospel. That is a supernatural message. That is an internal message. That is the only message that actually changed the hearts of human beings long-term and eternally. So that was their message. It's all-encompassing, by the way. It's not a focused, myopic message. It's universal, and it's binding on everyone. Got to the heart of the human condition and the human problem. Number three, you need to say that all slavery is not the same. And that's true. All slavery is not the same. Well, there's slavery in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, there is. Under the Mosaic Law. But that is not the same as slavery in the Greco-Roman Empire. Not even close, actually. And the kind of slavery that was witnessed here in America till the 1860s, 1865, That was not the same as the kind of slavery in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law. And there were some differences between that slavery and even Greco-Roman slavery in the days of the Apostle Paul. So you do have to say that not all slavery was the same. You have to point that out and you have to know your history. You can even show it from the Bible. Not all slavery was bad. That's number four. Not all slavery was bad. 
Now, that might shock some people, but there is a context to it. The slavery that is talked about under the Mosaic Law, under Moses, and the conditions of it is not bad. And we'll explain why in just a second. Most slavery, as we know it throughout history and even today, is bad. It is evil. I mentioned last week there's slavery in the world today. Over 45 million people enslaved today in countries around the world. By the way, there is no legal slavery here in America today, but there are in country after country after country all over the world today to the tune of over 45 million people. Mentioned India has over 18 million people in some form of slavery today. China, over 3 million people in slavery today. Russia, over 1 million people in slavery today in various forms. And on and on it goes. Guatemala, actually, is on the top of the list in terms of the percentage and per capita of people in that small country who are in slavery today. The common denominator, as I looked at the list of the top 25 countries who have legalized slavery today, common denominators of those who lead the pack. They're either communistic countries, pagan countries, or Islamic countries. A country that has been influenced over time with the majority of true biblical Christianity has put restraints on or even eradicated institutional slavery, the United States being one example. So much so that we we codified it in our Constitution in one of our amendments in 1865. So not all slavery was bad. And we're going to talk just about what some distinctions about mosaic slavery that made it different. And then number five, not all slave owners were bad. See, that's really the key. Not all slave owners were bad. Some slave owners were good, actually. Philemon is one of them. Philemon was a godly man, yet he was a slave owner. How can this be? This doesn't fly today in this day and age here in American culture. If you're watching the news, see what happened Friday? Right here in America, Friday the 13th, on the 275th birthday of Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, author of the Declaration of Independence, co-author of the Constitution of the United States. Thomas Jefferson used to be revered and respected for the 200-plus years of American history here as a founding father of the liberties and freedoms we have in this country. Started an institution, the University of Virginia, where his big statue sits on the campus there, and every year... Friday, I think it's the, not Friday, but on the 13th of April, he is honored as a founding father, but also a a founder of the University of Virginia. And so this past Friday, just a few years ago, his statue was defaced with spray paint and everything else, calling him a racist and a rapist and all this stuff. And they're trying to tear a statue down, as they've been doing for the last six plus months of all these so-called slave owners that are the founding fathers of America just smashing their statues and we need to tear down all George Washington statues and Thomas Jefferson and all the rest. Indiscriminately. When, well, not all the founding fathers were slave owners. And number two, even those that did have slaves, they weren't all the same. Some were evil and wicked. Some were not wicked. Some who owned slaves actually wanted to abolish slavery. So there's a historical context that needs to be Understood. Because in the days of Thomas Jefferson, if you've got your next door neighbor's got 20 slaves and he's just an evil, wicked man to the core and beats his slaves to bloody pulp and even kills them, and then you're a Christian next door and a wealthy person and you have a heart for people and you know the love of God and you believe that every human being is made in God's image, out of a heart of compassion, you might want to try to buy some of these slaves and bring them into your house to protect and nurture. And that's actually a historical reality. That's what some Christians did. But that is also true of Philemon as the man of God. So just a quick overview. Let's look to the Old Testament in slavery. You can't, you can't be naive. You can't, as a Christian, you can't ignore it. You can't lie. You can't be deceitful when unbelievers or skeptics say, hey, Christian, why does the Bible not condemn slavery? Why does it endorse slavery? Why does it allow for slavery? Well, the Bible doesn't allow for slavery. Yeah, it does. Here's a quick historical survey. The first instance of slavery in the Bible is in Genesis 15, verse 13, in the days of Abraham. So this is like 2160 B.C. I'm not going to read it, but I'll just basically tell you what it says. So God calls Abraham. He's going to make Abraham a great nation. 
He's going to be God's man. Abraham is commended for being a man of faith. He was justified. He got saved. He's a believer. He loves God. And in Genesis 15, God warns Abraham and says, you know what? Your descendants, the Jews, they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be wicked. And we know that happened. So that's the first mention of institutionalized slavery or the slave trade, Genesis 15. Now, the first instance of slavery actually happening or the slave trade, I should say, in the Bible, historically, is in the days of Joseph in 1900 B.C. So you can read about that in Genesis 37. Joseph is 17 years old. He's got 10 older brothers. They hate his guts. They're out in the fields. He goes out to talk to his brothers. They beat him up. They throw him in a pit. They want to kill him. One brother intervenes. Can't kill him. Then here comes the uh, Ishmaelites. A caravan of Ishmaelites were coming down the road. They're traders. Uh, and they're headed down to Egypt to make their trade and their money. And then one of Joseph's brothers says, okay, let's not kill Joseph. Let's, let's sell him as a slave to the Ishmaelites or the Midianites. Same thing. And so they sell their brother for money, 20 shekels of silver, whatever that is. That is institutionalized slave, slavery. The slave trade. And Joseph's brothers, including Judah was involved in that. Then the next place we read about slavery formally is in Exodus, chapter 1, verses 8 and 11. The new Pharaoh. The new Pharaoh who was in charge, did not know Joseph, 1500 B.C., and that's when Moses was born as a little baby. And God allowed, he blessed 74 of the Jews and Israelites over the course of 400 years to explode in terms of their population to a peak of over 2 million Jews in the land of Goshen there in Egypt. And the Egyptians were intimidated, as was the Pharaoh. So the Pharaoh started making rules and laws of slavery to subject the Israelites to harsh slavery. Brutal. And they cried out in anguish to their God, to Yahweh set us free. And he did, through Moses. So there's an example of pagan slavery that the Jews were subjected to. It's kind of interesting. When God rescued them out of slavery and brought them through the Red Sea into the Promised Land, or actually before that, even just to Mount Sinai before they go into the Promised Land, and God appears to Moses, gives him the Ten Commandments, and all these laws, and over and over again, especially in Leviticus, God keeps reminding Moses, I want you to do this, and I want your people to do this, and when you get to the land, do this. Treat foreigners and aliens like this. Treat them kindly. Treat them graciously. Why? Because I saved you out of slavery when you were an alien in Egypt. Because I rescued you. So that gives you an attitude of God's view of slavery. God didn't like slavery. So, and just to finish the survey of the Old Testament, Job had servants, Job chapter 1, Many servants lived in his house. He was rich. They served him. He was the boss. He was technically their master. It doesn't say he, they were slaves. It calls them servants. Well, was he a mean, vicious, evil, wicked task master, Job? No. He was the most righteous man in that day. He loved God. Then you flip over to Job 31, and then... Job talks about his servants. It's an amazing statement he makes, that they are made by the same creator that he was made. He says, basically he says, I am equal with the servants in my household. We have the same creator. We are all made in the image of God. That's how Job viewed his servant. As people, that's the difference. The Greco-Roman form of slavery did not view slaves as people. They were property. Uh, slavery that, be, that existed in America. By the way, the slavery that existed in America didn't start in America. Those of you who haven't studied your history yet, didn't start in America. Negro slavery actually historically starts all the way back in the 1400s with the Portuguese and the Spaniards. I know that because I've studied it, but also when I was in Ghana, they took us on a tour uh, right on the coast where there was a, a slaveholding of the earliest slaves in the slave trade in the 1400s. And it was a booming business, and it kept growing, and it spread to Europe, and then eventually it's, it's swept into the colony. 
But Job, he considered fellow human beings and servants uh, as human beings made in the image of God. Abram had servants. He had hundreds of servants. He treated them with dignity as his children. He, they were trained. They were Eliezer of Damascus was his main servant. And if he didn't have a child, then Eliezer would become the heir of all that Abraham had. Isaac had servants and many of them. Jacob had servants and many of them. King David had servants and many of them. King David even had kind of forced labor of non-Israelites. Solomon picked that up after David and even did it more. And it's even delineated in Kings of how many slaves that Solomon had. And they were non-Jewish slaves. They were people from other countries that they conquered, 150,000 of them. 70,000 laborers and then like 80,000 stonecutters. So all these godly people had servants. And then after Solomon was Rehoboam, and then he, he literally turned them into slaves. Brutal. Sadly. So slavery is in the Old Testament. Slavery cannot be found in the Gospels uh, among the Jewish people. Slavery did not exist in the land of Israel as far as we know from the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus. Slavery, in terms of its existence and institution, probably disappeared during the Babylonian captivity for 70 years when, get this, ironically, the Jews became enslaved to Nebuchadnezzar. Purified the nation of Israel and got rid of their idolatry and also their slavery. Brought them back. That's why in the four Gospels you don't have a hint of idolatry among the Jews anymore or slavery. They became a purified people from that respect. But you do have it in the Roman Empire, where Israel is a part of the Roman Empire. That's why it still exists. And the closer you go to Rome, the worse it is. The more preponderance of slavery you have. The estimates are that one in every three people in Rome, of the million people there, or million plus people, one out of every three was a slave in the city of Rome. In the whole Roman Empire, one out of every five was a slave in that day. In these Greco-Roman pagan cities and towns, in and you had, in all the major cities, starting with Rome and all the hubs of business throughout the Roman Empire, had slave markets, vital, ongoing, money-making slave markets, just like you see on television. If you've never seen Roots, the miniseries, you, you need an education. Go on YouTube, rent it, whatever you need to do. Watch it. I just recommend it. Much of it is very realistic of the abomination of slavery and actually what went on in our day, but also historically in Rome by way of parallel. So that's just an overview. By the, and then you get to the New Testament. Even though that slavery didn't exist among the Jews, Jesus did make reference to slavery a couple times in his parables, especially Matthew 18 in particular. But the kind of slavery he's describing wasn't Jewish slavery. It was clearly has to be the kind of slavery in the Roman Empire. you got a Caesar, a king. He's in charge. He reigns, he rules, everybody else is subject to him. And Jesus used a parable or a story in light of that institution called slavery. So now I want you to look as one example, one case study. Just go back to Hebrews, I mean, sorry, in your, your Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, and then in Exodus chapter 21, right after giving the Ten Commandments, God makes a comment about slavery, God's view of slavery and there are many passages you could go to in the Pentateuch, starting at Exodus 21, and you could go to Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15, and several other places. But this, this will suffice. This will kind of illustrate God's attitude regarding the kind of slavery that was under the Mosaic Covenant. Moses didn't institute slavery. It already existed. What God was trying to do was manage it and bring humanity to it and the dignity of the human being to the institution and even freedoms that were unknown to the pagans. So uh, let's look at Exodus 21, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew slave, okay, Moses, tell your Jewish Israelite people, if you buy a Hebrew slave, if you buy a fellow brother, a fellow Jew into slavery, now what you need to know from other passages, all slavery that went on between Jew and Jew, Hebrew, Hebrew, Israelite, Israelite, was voluntary. In other words, one Jewish man, he's married, he's got all kinds of kids, can't pay his bills, he's in debt. Oh, you know what, I'm going to go to uh, so-and-so across the street and I'm going, to, I'm going to 
voluntarily subject myself for a certain price and become his servant. That's what he's talking about. This is not the slave trade. This is volunteer. We know this. This is clear from all the statements. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. That's it. On the seventh year, the year, seventh year was a Sabbath. He shall go out as a free man without payment. There it is. Already you see the difference. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, see, he gets married or he's got a wife, you recognize their marriage as a legitimate, bona fide, godly marriage. Then his wife shall go out with him. Verse 4, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. Ooh, that's weird. Verse 5, but if the slave plainly... Get this. So the slave serves as a servant for six years, his master, and then he's, he's, it's not like, oh, I can't wait to get out. Here's uh, year six is coming up, Jubilee year or Sabbath year, and I'm going to get out of this relationship. There were actually the possibility that a slave could come to love his master and appreciate him so much that he didn't want to leave. Well, I serve here, and I got a great job, and I've got a massive palatial room, and all my needs are taken care of, and my master's taking care of my whole family and my grandma, and I really appreciate that, and I don't want to get booted out. Man, I want to stay here, and he treats me well, and I get to watch the 3D screen, and on, who knows what was going on. So much so to verse 5, he says, if the, get this, the slave plainly says, I love my master. I love you. My wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Master, can I stay? Please, please. And my whole family, can we stay here? Can you pay for our college? Please. And if you had a good master, he would say, yes, uh, verse 6, but it's not just my decision. They had to do it legally. So slaves had legal rights, which is different, verse 6. Then his master shall bring him to, not God, to the judges, the court. And they would lay out the case. Then he shall, then he'd get uh, a ruling and they would legitimize the transaction. Okay, you are allowed to stay. It is totally legal. I won't be falsely accused of keeping you against your will because it's the seventh year of the Sabbath and you're still living in my house. We have a certificate right here from the judges and their imprimatur that you are legally mine, willingly staying here. That's what it's talking about. And then he shall bring, get this, he shall bring the willing servant or slave to the door or the doorpost, probably of the master's house, front door, the entry. That's, this is kind of weird, but it's symbolic. And his master shall pierce his ear with an owl. In other words, punch a hole, uh, hole punch. Boom! Through his ear into the door. Showing the finality, the permanence of their relationship to his master and his home. Then there was a huge mark left over, a pierced ear of the man slave so that everybody knew oh okay so you you belong over there okay that was legal and you and you wanted to do it oh wow awesome that's what that was all about then 7 through 11 talks about a female slave and in the end it's it's preserving her rights so that she is not misabused and taken advantage of especially with re- regard to her basic needs in life that's verse 10 and 11 food clothing housing, and then if they decide they don't want her, or if they try, they can't sell her to a foreigner, she has to, if they try to sell her, no, you have to let her go free. So these are amazing. So that's just one example uh, of many other examples of the freedoms and the rights that those who are slaves, by the way, a, a Hebrew technically wasn't supposed to call his Hebrew servant a slave anyway. That was categorically condemned by God. Uh, slaves, by the way, according to the book of Leviticus, they were protected with capital punishment. You couldn't, if you, you, if you were a slave owner, you couldn't kill your slave. If you had a Hebrew slave or a foreigner slave, you couldn't kill your slave. If you did, you got the death penalty because God was showing the value of every human being made in the image of God. Every human life is sacred. And God protected that in the Mosaic law. You couldn't beat your slave. If you hit your slave and they lost their eye or a limb, the slave was immediately set free. So this is radically different than slavery that we're accustomed to and what we know about. So going back to the Apostle Paul and Philemon and that kind of slavery that existed, it was an evil embedded institution 
in the Roman Empire as a part of the fabric of the culture, the Apostle Paul, he couldn't change it all by himself. He was an outsider. The Apostle Paul, going from Roman province, Roman city to Roman city, nobody knew who he was. He's an outsider. He's all by himself. He doesn't have guns. He doesn't have ammo. And if he went into all these cities trying to overrule slavery, what would happen? He would be arrested immediately as a vigilante for insurrection and then thrown into the prison like he was in Acts 16 in Philippi where he was falsely accused for insurrection, they'd beat him to a bloody pulp and kill him if they had to to shut him up. God only started out with 13 apostles and and a small minority of believers. God knew. If we're going to change this system, expose this evil, wicked system, that's not how we're not going to do it from the outside with superficial means. We're going to do it from the inside. We're going to address the human heart with the root of the problem and not the fruit of the problem. The sinfulness of every human soul born into this world. And God is the only one that can change that wicked, evil, hardened heart through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So changing the heart of those who are influential would have more impact. And we know from history that kind of happened with Constantine the emperor. Just changing one emperor's heart with the truth of the gospel had an impact on the entire empire and culture and it reverberated all throughout history for 1,700 years, really. And that's why today, on any country that you visit in the world, if they have a biblical view of humanity, those made in the image of God, you know that Christianity had an impact historically. And that's what happened here in the United States, that's happened in other countries. It happened in the United Kingdom with just one man, William Wilberforce. It's amazing. So let me close with this, this issue of slavery. I just hope, hopefully that was helpful for you of understanding slavery and, and God's view of it and how it's not all the same. Let me close by saying that you are a slave. Did you know that you are a slave? Whether you are a Christian or not, you are a slave. I am a slave. And did you know that when you die, you will be a slave? Did you know that you will be a slave for all eternity, no matter who you are today, what you believe? It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. You might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a slave to anybody. Well, you know what? Then you sound like the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in John chapter 8, because that's exactly what they said to Jesus when he said they were slaves. And he said, anybody who commits sin is a slave to sin. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the greatest master, he is Lord, he is sovereign, he owns people, he owns souls, but he's perfect, he is sinless, he is loving, he's the master. If you know him, you are his slave. If you know Jesus Christ and believe in the gospel, you are no longer a slave of sin. If you know Jesus Christ as a Christian, you are no longer a slave of the devil. If you are not a Christian and you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are a slave to sin. You are a slave to fear. You're a slave to death. You are a slave to Satan himself. You're a slave to eternal condemnation in hell forever. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 and many other places. And yet when you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he was the God-man, that he died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, all those enslaved to their own sin and condemned to hell, that he died as a substitute for you. He paid the penalty and absorbed the wrath of Almighty God, the Holy Father. He died, he was buried, he rose again from the dead, conquering death, conquering that kind of evil, wicked slavery. And then you cry out to him and ask him to save you, ask him to be your savior, ask him to transform you, ask him to forgive you of your sin, ask him to adopt you into his family where you become a child of God, but also a slave of righteousness, a slave of obedience, a slave of holiness, a slave to Christ the Master. And we go all the way into the book of Revelation into eternity future. Revelation 21, Revelation 22, all who go to heaven, they only get there by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and His glorious gospel. And even when you get into heaven where it is perfect, slavery or servanthood is not banished. We will all be servants of our glorious God and Jesus Christ for all eternity. And it will be a blessed reality. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for, again, today and a time to be with your people and a time to look to your word 
And there's so much in Scripture on any given topic, and that's true of this whole issue of slavery. Physical, sinful slavery, and spiritual, righteous servanthood. God, thank you for those of us who have come to know Lord Jesus Christ as our elder brother, as our Savior, as children of God, and at the same time, willing servants to you, the perfect master. Continue to sensitize our hearts that we will have submissive hearts and attitude, attitudes towards you. We will be typified by obedience to you in all things, that you might receive the glory, that we might be blessed, and that others might receive a clear testimony of your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.